Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Aaron McMillan opens the Scriptures. It is the last day of 2023 already. So I feel a little bit obligated to ask you if you've ever or maybe this year, have made a New Year's resolution. Usually this time of year, our minds are filled with thoughts about how maybe things went wrong this year, but next year is going to be better. We're going to exercise more. We're going to eat healthier. We're going to exercise. We're going to save money. We're going to conquer those bad habits. But if you're like me, and apparently most Americans, you're not going to make it past January. 80% of people fail by February, and I think the last statistic I read is somewhere around 9% might make it all the way through. I was scrolling through social media the other day, which is a habit I should resolve to get rid of this year, and uh, someone had posted, I made a resolution to lose 10 pounds in 2023. With with a week to go, I only have 15 pounds left to lose. (laughs) I can relate with that one. And this is why I've stopped making resolutions altogether, because I just never seem to keep them. Instead of becoming a source of motivation, my resolutions actually became a source of discouragement, as I never seemed to be able to follow through. As I think about it, I can make a whole bunch of excuses, but at the end of the day, I really just come to realize the ultimate problem was me. I've tried to save money, but there's this website called Amazon.com, and it just calls my name. There's always something that I just have to have. I've tried to eat healthy, but I mean, really, how can I order a salad when there's a cheeseburger on the menu? I've tried to exercise, but man, those mornings that I commit to waking up early, my bed just feels extra cozy. At the end of the day, it's just easier to give in to what I truly want than to stay disciplined and affect change. And I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And maybe you can relate to some of what I'm saying. But my guess is that you've also experienced this same kind of thing when it comes to your spiritual life. And I'm not just talking about resolutions to read through the Bible in a year, or pray more, or give more. I'm also talking about the sin habits that you know you need to change, but you keep failing. You realize that it's easier to yell at your spouse or children than respond with a calm and gentle word. You realize it's easier just to keep scrolling on your phone than to get up off the couch. It's easier to spread gossip than to pick up the phone, lend a helping hand. It's easier to harbor our resentment than to extend forgiveness. It's easier to grumble and to complain than to offer to be part of the solution. It's easier to hide our sin than to open up about 
our struggles. And when we frame it this way, we see that there's more at stake than just a few unaccomplished New Year's resolutions. Because it speaks to who we are. It speaks to our Christian walk as a whole. We may know the right thing to do, but that's not the problem. We may resolve to do better in the new year. But inevitably, we find ourselves discouraged by the sin that seems to come so easily to us. And just like so many of our New Year's resolutions, the time goes by and nothing changes. And before long, we find ourselves discouraged and disappointed in our walk, wondering if we'll ever get it right. I wonder if you've ever felt this way, because I know that I have. Living in this tension of wanting to do what is right, but feeling that you can't help but to do what is wrong. The good news for us this morning is that we're actually in good company, because the Apostle Paul finds himself writing about this same exact feeling in Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he writes in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. And then he says in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And This should bring us some sense of comfort, I would think, because we're talking about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's facing the same kind of tension that many of us face as well, a tension between wanting to do the right thing, but time and time again falling short. But then I think, well, but this is also very concerning, because if the Apostle, the Apostle Paul... Maybe the most qualified believer in all the New Testament is struggling with this kind of tension. Then what does that mean for regular people like me and you? Is there any hope for us as we try to live out God's plan and purpose for our life? Now, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to back up and make sure we really understand these verses in context. And when we do, I'm confident that we'll leave here with hope and not despair. That this isn't the destiny of every believer, but it is a reality that we need to come to grips with. So before we begin, we just join me with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I pray pray for your words and clarity this morning as we cover a lot of ground. And it speaks to... Many sensitive issues here this morning. I pray just that you would minister to our hearts as we open up your word. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to try very briefly and not really do it too much justice, but go all the way back to Romans 1 and just give you the the base argument so we can understand Romans 7. So very brief overview, Romans 1 and 2. Paul describes the corruption that sin has brought, how everyone will be judged according to God's righteous law. 
This is problematic for us, as Paul tells us in Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that puts us in a predicament because we know that we cannot meet God's standard, his righteous law, that everyone has turned aside. But thankfully, Paul continues over the next few chapters to explain not how people can be saved by the law that actually condemns them, but instead we obtain righteousness before God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is really the thrust of chapters 4 and 5. We come to the end of chapter 5, and we see these two verses that are significant for us this morning. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul anticipates that this may cause some people to throw out the law and do whatever they want because they have received grace. People are condemned, they are unrighteous, they will face judgment, but yet God gives grace through his son, Jesus. Well, great, then I don't need the law. I can just do whatever I want. Paul argues against that sentiment in the beginning of chapter 6. He says that is absurd. In the beginning of Romans 6, Romans 6, 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In verse 6 and 7, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He then continues, verse 11, I don't know if I have these on the screen. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In verse 22, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And Paul is saying, yes, you have grace, and that enables us now to be dead to sin, to be alive to Christ. He continues this thought as he opens chapter 7. He says in chapter 7, verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Paul is painting a pretty clear picture for the believer. We are no longer held captive by sin. We have obtained grace through Christ. But the question then comes, well, if all of this is true, which it is, if all of this is true, then why do I keep on sinning? Why do I keep on sinning? And so Paul, again, anticipating a question that might come, said, well, maybe the problem is actually the law. And this law that we're talking about is not just the Ten Commandments. This law that we're talking about is this moral law given by God that's written 
on everyone's heart that says there is a God and there is a way to live. And if we've been set free from the law because we can't keep it perfectly through faith in Jesus, then why do I keep on sinning? Well, maybe the problem is actually the law. Because, you know, if we didn't have the law, then we wouldn't have sin. If there was no standard, then what would it really matter? Maybe the law is the problem. And so this is what Paul addresses in the next few verses of Romans chapter 7. It's verses 7 through 13. We won't read them for the sake of time, but I'll just give you a couple highlights of what Paul argues here in these verses and a couple other places throughout Romans. Well, no, the law is not the problem. Of course not. Again, he says, by no means. The law shows us our sin. The law shows us what sin is. The law shows us the character of God. The law shows us the sinfulness of sin. The law shows us the will of God. The law shows us our need for a Savior. Paul is saying, no, the problem is not the law. Okay, well then, why do I keep on sinning? He answers this question in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So this presents another complicated question for us. What does Paul mean? That he is of the flesh, sold under sin, especially because we just saw all those verses in Romans chapter 6 that said he was set free from sin. There are a few key thoughts that we need to understand that's happening in verse 14 and in the, in the verses that follow. Up to this point in Romans chapter 7, Paul has been speaking in the past tense. And he's saying, this is what the law has done for me. This is what the law has shown me. And this is now how I have been saved, through Christ. But now here he shifts to the present tense. And he shifts to personal pronouns. Paul is indeed talking about himself. He is talking about himself as a saved man. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. But Paul is writing to the Romans. This is likely 20 years or so after his conversion. This is on his third missionary journey. And Paul is saying, but I am of the flesh and not uh, and sold under sin. How does that compute? I think what Paul is doing is he's making an important distinction between that which is spiritual and that which is flesh. He says, for the, we know that the law is spiritual. It is good, it is righteous, it is holy. It points us to God. And Paul would say that in his inner man, he too is spiritual. That gets fleshed out over the next few verses. But he is of the flesh. He's not in heaven. He hasn't been glorified. He's not with Christ perfected. He's still in a body. He's still in human flesh. And this human flesh, this remnant of the old man, is still pulled towards, taken captive by the flesh or sin. The old man is and always will be tainted by sin until our glorification. This is a side note, but this is why the resurrection 
And a new body is so important. Because in our glorification, not only is our inner man renewed, but we receive a new and glorified body. Why? So that it is not tainted by the sin of our old nature. This is what Paul is getting at. This is key, and I'm going to be fancy. I don't know any Latin, but Luther did, and he wrote in Latin. So I don't even know how to pronounce this stuff, but I think it's a very important uh, principle, and Luther brought it out. And this verse, verse 14 of Romans chapter 7, was key in his bringing up this, this idea. And the idea in Latin is simul justus et peccator. You can even almost see it in English. Luther says, and church fathers and me would agree, that we are simultaneously righteous or justified and sinner. How can this be? Because while our inner man is renewed in Christ, our old man is still present and influencing our flesh. We are simultaneously righteous and sinner. This is the tension that we all live in. Declared righteous, justified, yet still a sinner in our flesh. The problem isn't the law of God, but it's within us. And so then where does that leave us. Well, we get back to where we started in this exclamation by Paul. Well, if this is true, I don't even understand my own actions for I do not do what I want. He's like, I want to do the right thing. That's a sign of the inner man. This is the sign of a, of a Christian. I, I want to follow God's law. I want to do what's right, but I do the very things that I hate. How can this be true? Because he's been renewed in the inner man, but there is a struggle struggle with the flesh. Paul knows that the law is good, and yet he's struggling with his own action. He knows that he's supposed to be dead to sin, but yet he finds himself doing the very thing that he hates. And isn't this our struggle too? The struggle between our desire to do what was right against the sinful inclinations of the flesh. But then sometimes they're saying, well, I don't even know what happened. I don't even understand how I did this. Well, Paul says, this is a sign of the problem we all have found in our sin nature. So what do we do now? How do we then navigate this tension? Do we just stay at Romans seven fifteen? I don't understand. I don't get it. I try to do it right. I end up doing what I hate. So that's our first option. What do we do now? Option one, we could quit. Just quit. Throw our hands up. Say it's too hard. It's too much. Paul says I'm always going to struggle with this, so forget about it. I'm just going to do my own thing. I hope if you're here this morning, you understand that this is not an option for the believer. We're not called to quit. We are called to pursue righteousness. We are called to, as Paul would say, press on towards the prize. And we have good motivation to do so. We know what the future entails. Quitting is not an option. So we won't spend any more time there. But here's option number two. Let's try harder. Let's try harder to keep the law. 
Let's try harder to please God, to keep this moral law that God has given us. This is how we often tackle New Year's resolutions. This year, I'm going to try harder. But this is also why we often fail. Paul argues against trying harder in the next few verses. Look with me, verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So we've already talked about how the law is good. The law is still good for you and me today. And our sin reveals that. The law is still good. But he's saying even our best efforts reveal that there is still sin in us. Now if I do what I do not want, if I do sin, I agree with the law that it is good. So he's trying, but he ends up doing the things that he hates, that he doesn't want to do. And then he says this in verse 17, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now this is an interesting verse. Is Paul making excuses now for his sin? Is he trying to escape responsibility? Oh, it's not, it's not my fault. It's the sin that dwells within me. No, I don't think that's what Paul is doing at all. He's highlighting this distinction between that which is spiritual in the inner man So now it is no longer I in my true self, my renewed self, my new identity in Christ. It's not that man who is doing the sin, but it's the sin that dwells within me. The source of his sin is his sin nature that is always there and will always be there. And he continues to highlight this in the next two verses. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. He understands that The inner man is good. So he has to stop, pause, qualify. Well, yes, but in my own self. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul says you want to try harder, you're not going to go anywhere. Because there's nothing in you that's going to help you here. You can't just try to do more, to do better. That's not going to work. Because even when we want to do what is right, we can't do anything good within our own selves. We won't have the ability to follow through. This is why we can see Monumental men of the faith and women of the faith. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter. They all had a desire to follow God. But you know what they all had in common? Failure as well. It can't just be about doing more or doing better. And so that's why in verse 20, he repeats the same thing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's just highlighting this ongoing sense of this tension that will always be with us. If you try to manage this by your own efforts, you're setting yourself up for a lifelong agonizing and losing battle. And so verses 17 through 20 here show us that the problem is not the law and it's not really even our own efforts to obey it. 
The problem is the sin that dwells within us. So it can't be a matter of effort. And so maybe then we just need to want it more. We need to desire godliness more. But look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law. I find it to be a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul's saying there's going to be two powers that are pulling against each other. My desire and evil lying close at hand. Verses 22 and 23, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. What he's saying is these two laws are competing. And they will always be competing. These two overarching guiding principles. The first is the law of God, which he's already said is good. And here he says that his desire is in the right place, where I delight in the law of God. It's remnant of Psalm 1. It's remnant of Psalm 119 and Psalm 19. He's like, my true desire, my true delight is found in the law of God. But there's a second law or guiding principle within him, and it's opposed to God. It's not part of the new man, which is why he says it's part of the members of his body. This law of sin, this flesh, is waging war. It's attacking and assaulting Paul. This phrase, uh, making me captive or making me a prisoner. We're being led away as a captive. This is what sin in our flesh does. And so when we take verses 17 through 23 as a whole, Paul's saying, listen, you want to try harder, but it's not about your own effort. And it's not even about more godly desires, because Paul had both of those things. He was working hard. He did delight in the Lord. And his law. And so then it's like, well, what do I do then? Now I'm back to number one. I'm just going to quit. Paul then says maybe what at least I was thinking. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. And now it may not seem like it at first glance, but this is where we actually find the third and only true option to resolving the tension between justified and sinner. The battle between wanting to do what is right and not having the ability to carry it out. Paul describes himself here as wretched. It's it's actually a military word. It's about uh, he's endured toils and troubles on the battlefield. He's exhausted. He's afflicted and miserable. And so then he asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? He has come to the point, the recognition that the solution to his inner struggle to his corrupted body, to his sin nature, must come from outside of himself. It must come from someone who does not have the same tension, who does not have the same nature, who does not have this inner conflict of God's law versus sin in the flesh. 
And this is the recognition that every believer must come to. I need a savior. What makes Jesus unique is that yes, he was man and yes, he was God, but he was without sin. He was not tainted with this battle of inner conflict of fleshly desires. And so now we look to him, which is why Paul continues in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of flesh, this body of death, this tension? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul recognizes that the ultimate deliverance of this law of sin within us can only come from Christ. Now this ultimate deliverance from this body of death won't come until our glorification, which we talked about earlier. Which is why Paul then adds this to the end of verse 25. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Paul. I thought we just got over this. I thought we were there. Jesus fixed everything. And you're like, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, he's telling us this is the principle. This is life. This is humanity. That yes, we recognize who Jesus is, what he has done, and that he is our only hope of salvation. But that doesn't mean that the battle is gone or over. But what it does is change our perspective. And so instead of saying, oh, wretched man that I am, I don't understand what I do. What am I going to do? Hopelessness and despair. We can say, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, I desire and I am going to serve the Lord, the law of God, with my mind. But I understand, and it's okay, that I am going to have to fight my flesh because I know that in my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see, what Paul is doing, he's bringing us back to the reality of our struggle. He's not trying to minimize it or brush it under the rug or just say, well, just trust in Jesus and it's all going to be fine. You'll never have to worry about anything again. He says, no, no. But what he's doing is putting this battle in the proper perspective. What's the third option? The third option is simply look up. Look up. Don't look at your flesh. Don't look at your sin. Don't look and get overwhelmed by the battle, but look up to Jesus. Look to Jesus as now we simultaneously deal with the idea of being righteous and justified before God, but also still yet a sinner. Since this is the last day of 2023, and even though I've warned against it, I would like to give you, translate this idea into a New Year's resolution for 2024. But a resolution that isn't based on pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or trying harder to do good. So here's how I would phrase it. In 2024, I will resolve to rest. I will resolve to rest. I'm going to rest in what Christ has already done. He has declared me 
righteous. I am going to rest in what Christ is doing. He is working in me, in my sanctification. I will rest in what Christ will accomplish in me. That work that he started, he will complete it. My future is secure. I can rest in this. Now, here's an important thing to understand with this resolution to rest. This idea of resting is not taking a nap. This idea of resting isn't just kicking your feet up, laying back and saying, 2024, Pastor Aaron, he said I could rest. I'm taking a vacation for the next year. I'm just going to look up to Jesus. I mean, that would be nice. If you're able to do that, go for it. But this rest isn't something that we're, I'm talking about getting some sleep. This rest is about our confidence. This rest is about my security. I can prove this resolution to you if you bear with me and we look at just the first few verses of chapter 8. This is a whole other sermon. We're not going to get into it. How do I rest? What does this concept mean for the believer? It means Romans, all of Romans 8 really, but especially Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? No. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why are we able to rest in Christ? Because he has set us free. Does this eliminate the sin in our life, the daily struggle or battle that we have with it? No, but it does change the way we approach the fight. We can rest knowing that our efforts are not the gate of our acceptance before God. We can rest knowing that there is no need for guilt and shame because our debt has already been paid. We can rest knowing that we can approach God with confidence and in peace. We can rest knowing that our self-worth, our value is not based on our performance. We can rest in Christ and it changes how we fight the battle. And so do not confuse resting with being passive. There is still a battle to be fought. There is still an enemy to face. There is still the flesh to contend with. But it's essential that we start here. That we start the fight and the battle from our position of resting in Christ. Which is why this resolution isn't quite complete. I'm going to say that we shouldn't just resolve to rest. 
But in 2024, we should resolve to rest, then walk. Notice the end of verse 4, chapter 8. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How do we get over the end of chapter 7? Well, we're never going to get over it. It's going to be a constant. So how do we face it? Paul says quite clearly, not in our own flesh, not by our own efforts. We actually do it by walking. By walking in the Spirit. Walking according to the Spirit. When we serve, when we walk in the Spirit, we don't live out God's law out of obligation, but a sincere desire to love and follow His ways. When we walk by the Spirit, we are motivated by inner transformation, not just some external form of obedience. We walk by the Spirit. We seek to align our minds with Him. We are reliant on His power, not ours. Imagine how different our battle might be if we started by resting. If we fought from the position of no condemnation, if we walked by the Spirit, daily trusting in His power and not our own flesh. This is my goal for 2024, and I will fail. I know it. Paul tells me that I will. I will fail, but I'm not going to let that condemn me I'm going to stand and rest in his grace and then get up the next day and walk again according to the Spirit. May you do the same. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful that this is not about us, about being perfect, about doing more, about trying harder. That we can take some measure of comfort knowing it's not just us who fail, but that we will be motivated more by your grace and your love to continue to follow your law, to continue to walk in your path so that we might express, reflect the love that you have shown to us through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.